Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Let's do some ads. We got sponsors who are helping to bring you your Touchdowns All Day podcast. We'd like to thank all of them. First sponsor is Synlawn, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N. It is a artificial grass company, folks. And they have artificial grass that you could put anywhere. You could put it in your living room. You can put it in the backyard. You can put it, I, I would put it if you had a balcony, put it on the balcony. Anywhere that you're not quite sure what to do and you need some lawn, this place is perfect. Sinlawn uses bio-based ingredients like soy and sugar cane. It's made in the United States. They're uh, one of the largest manufacturers and installers of synthetic grass. It's USDA bio-based certified, safest and cleanest turf available, great for kids and pets. So go to sinlawn.com slash touchdowns and take a look at their products if you need grass for any of your needs in that category. I have some artificial grass at my house and let me tell you it's way easier folks sinlawn.com slash touchdowns for information on sinlawn products great for residential playgrounds roofing golf sinlawn thank you for joining our podcast thank you for sponsoring i'd like to thank sunsetlakecbd.com there's a promo code for 15 percent off for touchdowns all day listeners go to sunsetlakecbd.com and use the promo code touchdowns and they send me a box of cbd stuff and a bunch of documents about how pure the cbd was apparently you can go to their website and you can see all these documents really everything they had these cbd joints flower and a joint i have never smoked a cbd joint before but wonderful better than the edibles now you know me i don't really smoke joints that much so I don't really smoke anything, but that was good. It was really great. I was surprised. Their CBD gummies are awesome, of course. They had some tincture, some keef, and then there's some coffee. Really great. And everything has full documentation about the ingredients and what kind of milligrams you're getting. These guys are a family-owned dairy farm that produces milk for Ben & Jerry's ice cream, and they decided to diversify and start growing hemp for CBD. Probably because for every CBG joint they sell, they'll probably sell a quart of ice cream as well. You know how that works. Go to their website, sunsetlakecbd.com. Check it out. Promo code touchdowns for 15% off on the whole thing. We're mass communicating.
Crowd Stars is going to be sick for the biscuits. Yeah. It is going to be sick for the biscuits. We are going to make like a Tonight Show style TV show where we just play every night. You know really? what I mean? I don't know. That's what, I think that's possible. I think why not? I mean, if people, if we could figure out a way to make it work f- for like, you know, lodging and existence and, and, um, and we have enough songs. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're the one band that could do five shows a week, every single week. And it would be exactly fresh and interesting. You know what I mean? Like we probably get tired of it after a while, but. Well, I mean, but. And we probably you, need a week off every once in a while. But you wouldn't have to deal with the part that makes it all the worst. Anyways, which is riding on the bus, being Dude, away from your family. I, I I think if Couch Tour works, we could do the biscuits for a hundred years. You know what I mean? So if you, Couch Tour works, like how long did Johnny Carson do the Tonight Show for? Like a hundred and seventeen years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's awesome. Turn okay. Um, wow, look at Crunk Mike doing I, some visual micromanaging. He's like just, Look at that. Look at that. We're just like Johnny Carson. Yeah. The uh, the director. We got to sit Bro Bible Bible over there so he can do Ed McMahon's job. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing, though, that I want to know. You did shows this spring, summer with no audience. Is there something missing? Can you really do a biscuit show? Without the the energetic exchange yeah. between you and the audience. Yeah, we can. Oh, so you guys are completely unnecessary. No, can- no, no. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that we can do, we can play meaningful music yes. without a crowd staring at us while we do it. Yeah. We've done it before. Um, we could have small crowds. We've had jams in our practices. Like, we play without a crowd all the time. Yeah. So for us, it's just like, okay, you know, we, and when we practice, we were like, we don't, try and screw the song up when we're practicing. We try and play it exactly correctly. Yeah. The difference is if nobody's there and somebody screws something up really bad and they want to do it again, we stop. And they're like, ah, stop, let me do it again. Yeah. But if you're live streaming, you just don't stop in that situation. And if you're on stage, you don't stop in that situation. So that's it. That's the only difference. We play great jams as a band all the time. And we get to the end of the jam and practice and we're like, it's a bummer nobody heard that. And we said that to each other a hundred times at least, you know. There was a jam where Andy Bernstein from Headcount ran into the practice room that we're playing because he was in the other room like having a coca-cola or something like (laughs) just in the vicinity i think he was like coming to hang out with us and we were finishing rehearsal and he walked into the room and was like that was the best disco biscuit jam i've ever heard in my whole life yeah and we were like he's like did you record that we're like no we're just practicing and he's like it's a bummer well, and maybe the absence of the crowd there's there's not that pressure or that consciousness of the reaction and the room and the lights you could really focus on one another maybe it's going to be interesting to see the real connoisseurs of the music what that beast of music is going to be do they like the live stream jams better yeah do they like the live stream jams different are they you know it's going to be interesting conversations great fodder for the podcast yeah Definitely. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it'll be more interesting than us all sitting around waiting for the return to normal. We have to make the new normal. This is new normal. This yeah. is the new normal. We yeah. can't just wait to go back to February 2020. Mm-hmm. We have to create the new future. And that's, I guess, what you guys will be doing when you move back east. Yeah, I think if we have the, if we have a, a little space to do like a couple days a week and, and we have a ability i mean obviously with couch tour working it's a it's like a crazy amazing 
way to make music that the more that I think about it, the more excited I get because it is, you know, at being on tour in your late 20s when we were on tour all the time, mm. when like everything was new, you know what I mean? Yeah. And everything was great. Like we had a really good time. Music was great. We we worked on it all the time and it was cool. And the traveling was cool because we'd never been to any of these places. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you also didn't have anything at home that was any better. There's nothing at home at all. It was like a mattress on the floor. So I, I think back to some of the situations. It was like an outhouse and a mattress on the floor. Well, yeah, Upper Darby. We're going to talk about Upper Darby because that factors in this story. But I'm just like thinking of like, I remember an off day in Phoenix. Okay. We, we were all at your hotel room. You had the two mm -hmm. beds. And you guys were the five of you, Donald as well. Right. And I mean, like the gas station was the food option. There was right. nowhere to go, nothing to do, no money. Mm -hmm. It was, you, you basically yeah, relied on like us go, to show up and bring weed. Yeah. We, we, if it wasn't for you guys, we would have just sat there and watched TV. And it's so now bummer. though, you have beautiful wives and children at home. Mm -hmm. I see the Brownsteins, they have puppies and the Magners have a fire pit. Yeah. Who the fuck wants to be on the road yeah. when you have like a beautiful suburban, you know, like idyllic life to go back to? Right. Except for the fact that playing music for a bunch of people is awesome, especially when you get to play something different every night yeah. and you never get caught in that like, you know, if I don't play the hits, nobody's going to clap situation. Yeah. So like we, we escaped that situation. And and if like all those hours we spent trying to figure out where to get a good BLT in Charlotte are now going to be spent on like what is the tomorrow night show going to be? Yeah. If we can manage to do that more often than not, the shows should be like awesome. They should be the best shows we've ever played. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, we have lots of music from the past that we can delve into while Tons. you're figuring out the future. Tons of music from the past. And I've been bugging you to do this episode for a while, and I've probably been thinking about this for 20 years. And this is the episode where I just get to drill down with you and mm. ask you every question that I have about a specific song. This is the deep dive episode, yes. and I'm hopeful that it, th that this won't be a, an unpleasant experience for you, and you'll want to do it Unlikely. again. Because on the drive here, I was I was listening to some stuff in the car to get me in the right mindset, mm. and I listened to the first mindless dribble and the first shimmy. It's unrecognizable how prehistoric they are and how prehistoric and immature you guys are, and these are like, you know. February 1998. What do you mean unrecognizable to what? The later version of that song or to the band? Did you ever see like The Simpsons when they were on the Tracy Ullman show? Of course. The drawings were not right. The voices uh -huh. weren't right. And it was like the mouse would move the weird. The mouse would move wrong yeah. and weird. That's what listening to Dribble from February 1998 is like. It's like okay. you haven't figured it out yet. I get that. But then you listen to, so I think kind you guys. Kind of makes no sense, but I get it. You, yeah. you debuted Dribble in February 98 at Wetlands. And then 10 months later, you played Dribble on uh, the night before New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like clearly these people have made some sort of deal with Satan in order to like learn how to play their instruments and like learn how to play the song that mm -hmm. you had actually conceptualized because it's like a six minute song dribble mm -hmm. to like a 30 minute song with so much depth and so much variance. But are so you much hearing the difference in 
the jam and how we jam? Or are you hearing the difference in the, the verse and the chorus? Everything. Everything. The, you, you see like the seed of an idea mm -hmm. and you come back 10 months later and there is a full-blown blossoming tree with fruit on it and kids climbing in the limbs and it's like a full living, breathing thing versus this little this little like sapling or seedling. Okay. So so the idea is that, that, that let's look back at the history of these songs, see where they came from because very often I feel like the genesis, mm -hmm. the idea, it, it, it existed in your head and somehow the, the watering and the nurturing, it's just like the garden you've got out there. Yeah. The fertilizing, the, the trimming, the pruning, mm -hmm. that, that's something that takes place, you guys as the band, on the road, in front of the crowd, that interactive process. And you go from, in this case, a, a little 30-second instrumental segment that you're playing at the beginning of 2008, excuse me, 1998, to this magnum opus set piece the crux of the hot air balloon mm -hmm. in, you know, 10, 12 months later. And, and of course, we're talking about Above the Waves. I want to take our first deep dive into Above the Waves. Okay, okay. So let me just pause you for a yes. second. Ladies and gentlemen, couch tour all day, touchdowns all day. Uh, we have, this is Max's idea of a show. I just want to say, I have nothing to do with the show. It wasn't my <laughs> it idea. just showed up. I frankly don't think it's a very good idea, frankly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> This is Max's idea for a show. Max has been given carte blanche because his last show was such a big hit. And we just want Max to have creative freedom to get into some places where he finds things to be interesting. So we're going to go with Max and we're just going to like roll with it. Yeah. Um, so you were t he was talking about Miles Drew, he was talking about Shimmy, but really what, don't be distracted. We are going to be talking about Above the Waves yes. for this entire show. Are you a fan of the song Above the Waves? people in the audience if the answer is yes this is your show if the answer is no stay tuned because you might like what you hear as we dissect above the waves and its many incantations um i'm gonna kick it off mm -hmm. a part of above the waves was written um as i walked from the football field where i used to write music to the 7-Eleven where I used to get food while I was writing music. And so the whole above the waves going under is like kind of a strut section. And I literally remember it was dark out. It was like kind of the sun was coming up a little. It was like maybe four in the morning. And I was walking down the street singing that to myself. And that was how that whole part got created. Um, it really was just this like loopy little thing. And then Mark changed the bass and really turned it into actual music. Um, but, but that's really, it was that quick. Like that part was free. Were you singing the melody or were you singing the words? I was singing the words with no music at all. Okay. And then I added the music and then it was still kind of flat, but it was cool because the guitar was so crazy and the lyrics sat on it nice. And it was kind of, it was, and then Mark was like, well, why don't I do something weird on the bass and put some chord changes into it that are sweet and then it like became a whole section of the song so you got the guitar play the part that that was the part that you were humming along to yourself as you're walking through the streets of philly at four in the morning well this is the part right So that part was there. That part was probably a, just an arpeggio that I had sitting around. 
because you just write stuff. If you write enough little pieces of stuff, you can put things together like a Lego castle, which Hot Air Balloon is entirely constructed that way. And I don't know if I had that before or after the lyrics. I don't remember. So it's possible I did. I don't remember. Um, we're going to go back to that. But okay, let me we'll let me let me give you my argument for why I, I why why not Shimmy? Why not dribble? Why not crickets? Why not you know any number? Why not Magellan? Oh, you want to start at the top? Well, why I want to start why why above the waves? And, and, okay. and I'll go to a few a few words from some of your bandmates. Let's do it. So I, I brought this idea up to Mark, Allen, Aaron, and even Sammy. Okay. And I, I said, like, is that gonna... why you asked for Allen's number the other That's day? That's why. I had to... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That didn't tip you off. Nah, I didn't think anything of it. I thought you were just reaching out to Allen. <laughs> hey, how's it going, Allen? <laughs> um, I, I, when I brought it up to Mark, he said, "I'm not going to do voices," but he said, "He said, yeah." He said, "That is the mold of what we do." That is the template. Okay. And I think above the waves, I think of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, we can go into this, Mm -hmm. was the first song that was written to feature what is now thought of as being a Disco Biscuits jam. Whether you call it a a techno jam, a transfusion jam, it was the first song as far as I remember Mm -hmm. that you played it the first time and it immediately went into the jamming style that you guys had been developing and building up to. Like you had Boop, you had Vasilios, you had Shimmy. All those other songs had either a solo or an instrumental break or something where you carved out a space to make a Biscuits jam. Mm -hmm. But Above the Waves, you played it the first night at Wetlands 98. Right. And it- In December, right? At this point, December 29th, at this point, boom, and then into a Biscuits jam. Right, which which makes it somewhat of a first because it's it, it it's kind of like a a turning point in your songwriting. From that point on, biscuits songs have biscuits jams. They don't get written with a solo that gets then later on expanded or transformed. Okay, I see what you mean. So you get into above the waves, and the jam is thought of as a jam. There is no like it's not a solo that we're loosening up on, like Little Betty Boop. Exactly, except for the keyboard solo of Little Betty Boop is kind of a jam in, in, in that sense. Yeah. So we had it a little bit. It, that's like the closest thing I could think of mm-hmm. as a like as a precursor to Waves. But this just re, like at the beat, the tempo, everything about it sort of was so of the moment. It felt at least from our side in the audience, mm-hmm. like the culmination of the style that you guys had been developing over the course of 98. Freshness, yes. Uh, you know, within the context of the hot air balloon, it's what everything builds to. Mm-hmm. It, it's the payoff. It's like the crux. It's like the it's the moment where everything that's so dark or looking backwards, it's where the time frame changes, where it goes from flashbacks to the current moment. And it's where all of the stakes get played out where, you know, is he going to drown? Is he going to get there? Is right, he going right. to fly away? Um, and it's it's just such a showcase song for what you guys do. I remember back in 99, 2000, anytime you guys did a festival set, it was Above the Waves, Very Moon, and Run Like Hell. Like if you guys were opening for Mo, you're going to play Above the Waves, Very Moon, Run Like Hell. If you guys were at Gathering of the Vibes, it was like the song that if we had friends who were Fish fans or Deadheads or whatever, we made them a tape. We made them the tape with waves on it. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we thought everyone should hear. This is, oh, you got to hear this band. This is what they do. Um, It's still a very... 
unusual song as far as music bit goes, really. Sammy, when this is what Sammy said. He said, as a Barber fan, I always thought his best songs were aspirational. When the music and the lyrics sounded like the beautiful mad dreams of a mop-headed teenager strumming his guitar alone in his room in suburban New Jersey, staring up at the moon from his window, I'm not sure there's a more aspirational song than Above the Waves. There's such a, 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 a kind of undercurrent of hope in that song, of possibility, mm-hmm. of, of redemption. And there's something really beautiful about it. It's really resonated with fans. From the moment you debuted it, it really, I think, became a touchstone for a lot of the fan base. You know, I, immediately people started making their email addresses above the waves. And like, it became something that people really rallied behind. And I talked about this, I think, on the last time I was in, um, you guys played it like every night that winter tour. You played it like every two or three shows. But then you'd sound check it and you guys would let used to let us come in and like hang out during the sound check. And we just begged you to play it every night. Like, Huge what do you guys want us to play? Above the waves, above the waves. We just, we couldn't get enough of it. Cause it was mm-hmm. like the song of the moment of that winter tour. It was like the vehicle for so much you guys did. And, uh, it still remained a vehicle. Let me let me play you uh, a, a little bit of uh, some thoughts that Alan contributed on Waves. When I think of the Disco Biscuits, I think of Above the Waves. Above the Waves is like a, a song song. It's like a vehicle for jamming and it's a vehicle for storytelling. It's a, an amazing song, a masterpiece. A work of art. It's one of my favorites to play, always. Absolutely love Above the Waves. Can't wait to play it again. So I, I think your bandmates <laughs> share the high esteem that the audience holds Above the Waves in. Yeah. Alan, Sammy, Mark, Aaron, they all were very effusive in talking about what this song meant to them, mm-hmm. how much joy they got from playing it, and just how important it is in the Biscuits repertoire. So this is this is our opportunity to, to delve into this, to the to the the song, as Alan said, the song, the vehicle for jamming, and the vehicle for storytelling. Because that's the thing that I have always thought about above the waves. Apart from the amazing music, it is such a great story song that the the music, the composition itself tells such a, an emotive story. You get such a range from the tension and chaos of the jam to the hope and redemption of the ending. Mm-hmm. And and I think that there's so much to this song to explore, and, and its its story is very much like the story of the biscuits. I think this, this is my thesis. This is what okay. this is how I'm laying it out here. So so let me let me put yes, my, please. So I think all these very nice things that you're saying is great, and you don't take praise very well though. Well, no, honestly, I, I appreciate everything everybody's saying. It's really great. Um, the song kind of reflects how much of a fan of Claude Debussy that I was. Okay. It's a very Claude Debussy song. I think the reason I put so much love into that song was because I feel like after listening, being the only person I know in the whole world that listens to Claude Debussy, like I, I used to take naps to his music in college every single day. Um, nobody listened to this guy except for me and one guy in the jazz record store. Um, and Above the Waves was the one song where I was like, I got it. I have my Debussy lick. I have the thing 
that he had when he wrote La Mer. You know, I have my version of it. it does, it's it's the same idea. It's the same feeling, but it's not a copy. It's my version of it. It's his influence, but my take on it. And so I really felt kind of uh, that 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 song was written very quickly and it was written under huge duress of having to finish the rock opera. And it was like a very easy to write because I was just like, okay, this is this is my Debussy, Debussy moment. And I've been waiting for this for years. And let's just twist this and twist this and twist this. And then it was done. So is the Debussy part the opening, those... The whole song. The whole song. I, I, I think of the whole song as Claude Debussy, but yeah. Like, look, I didn't get into the time. I didn't go as far as he would have gone because I'm in a four-piece rock band. Yeah. But like, I, I didn't think of it as, like, uh, at the level of his quality of masterpiece. I just thought of it as, like, this is my, like, you know, sample version of it where I have the, I, the vibe is there. The, the, the feeling is there. The jam feels like Debussy to me always has. So to me, it was just like, uh, it was like a moment where... I, I was I was in a zone that I was meant to be in because I spent a lot of time preparing to be in that zone. So it's interesting how you describe the song as being written really quickly under duress. Yeah. And yet it contains parts, some of which were written much earlier. Yeah. Some of which were played on stage earlier. Some of which you said were kind of percolating in your head. Um, One I, was a bass line that I moved to guitar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, this yeah. is interesting because I... I, I, I in doing my research, um, I, I, I found this quote where you're talking about songwriting. You're talking about Magellan specifically, and you said, mm-hmm. Magellan was a I took all the pieces of music that I had that sounded like water, and some of those were things I wrote when I was a kid. Some of Vasilios I wrote when I was 12. That's part of the reason why it sounds so immature, because it's the way a 12-year-old writes. <laughs> but I never forget it. You archive stuff with yourself for a while, and then you put it out to everyone when you find a way to make it work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm referring to specifically with with waves with the the road song part, which was the first hot air balloon music that you played publicly. I guess um, no idea how that song got written. Way back, started playing it in. <laughs> I literally couldn't tell you when that was written. Of, I think I wrote it when we lived on Powelton Street, but I just don't remember. Well, let me let me play it. It's just about two minutes. Oh yeah, let's hear it. Wait, and you told me, wait, you were like, I went through all this trouble getting everything, but, and Waves just kind of wrote itself. Yeah. You were like, you were like, all of a sudden, I was just like, I knew what it was before I even wrote it. So, yeah, because I was like, this is WC. I, I know this stuff in the back of my hand. Let's just do what he would do with it. And and I was I had already tried to write songs about water. I'd already yeah. written Magellan at that point, right? Yeah, you, all your yeah. water song parts were already yeah, taken. Yeah, I already had, to, uh, Magellan was supposed to be WC, didn't get there, it turns more into like a... It almost turned into like a, like a, a Soundgarden song or mm. something at one point, you know? And it's just like, the Waves was the one where I was like, this is going to be what I've wanted all, you know, it was the one where I was like, this is going to be great. So you started playing this song on stage, this little interlude, uh, February, a very fertile period for you guys, early 1998, when uh, Jimmy Dribble debuted, a bunch of other stuff going on, but you would just kind of drop this three or four times into the middle of a set, like almost like how the dead used to do like tunings where Jerry would play like Teddy Bear's Picnic or Beer Barrel Polka or (laughs) something like that. But you would do this. 
is this being played? I want to say... Sounds like a pizza shop. Slade Hall in Vermont, University of Vermont in the oh, dorm. Oh, the basement? Yeah. yeah. Magner does the little, like, penny whistle type thing. Is Sammy not on stage yet? <laughs> Sammy's like... A, He's having a, a nut brown ale. <laughs> Probably, right? There he is. There he is. From there, you went right into Texas Pussy. <laughs> I swear to God, from that beautiful, like, acoustic, uh, pan flutey, right into Texas Pussy. There it is, folks. Um, Setlist 101. That's back when I wrote the setlist. <laughs> I don't have that job anymore. That's good. It's a positive. It's a, but, but to let you know what was going on there yeah, is... What is going on there? I don't know how that song goes. I don't know where it turns around, where the beats are. I don't write the notes out. I don't really know. I know when somebody's playing something that doesn't work. I don't know exactly like how to communicate that song because is that song in four? Is it in six? Is it in eight? Is it in six again? Is that are those E minors or those Gs? There's so many little nuances in that little piece. And I think I like wrote it just sitting in, in, like with the guitar one day when I was living uh, and the band moved in together. And I think it just ended up on a little tape and I would just listen to it. And then, but like the, the part of like scoring it out and figuring out what all the notes are. And I just never do that part. And I don't think if I did that part, it would make any difference. Like I would hand it to the other guys and then they'd be counting it. One, two, three. And like that could be cool too, but we just don't do our shit that way. I think other people do to great success, but we just don't. You know what I mean? So you're playing with that little piece of music a few times over the course of the spring. Yeah, and I don't know where the vocals go. I have no idea what it's good for. All I know is I really yeah. like it as is. And then like, where do we sing? What, what happens next? Like, so. And then yeah. it goes away. Yeah, and, and we don't it hear it away. again until December 29th at Wetlands. But in the in the meantime, you debut a song called Motri, Moxie, and Me <laughs> in the summer. Yeah. Uh, which we've determined is the kind of... Um, I thought that song was going to be great. I prehistoric be great. mulberries. I thought Motri, Moxie, and Me was going to be our next giant hit single. And I could not figure out who... <laughs> Mo, Tree, Moxie, or uh, who I was in that song. I literally couldn't. I thought I had great names for these people. If I could only find a story. Like, so so you have like a... Yeah, here it is. 
But at this point, are you writing a rock opera or is this just a groove that you're trying to turn into a song? What, when is this? July what, uh, 1st or 2nd Is this of July? 98. Yeah, I'm writing rock opera at this point. And I don't want you to know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, all right, now I remember what's going on. Yeah, yeah, now I remember what's going on. So here's that what happened. Yeah, so I think this would be like a good 2010 like house song. <laughs> you know, like a, you know, you know, like a bring, bring back Motri Moxie and me. Okay, so there was a problem with the fact that you guys knew so much about what we were doing, and there was an issue that I had with um, how was I gonna like keep make the the rock opera cool and there has to be some element of surprise because yeah. i didn't think it was going to be that great you know what i mean and i was like if you guys knew about it and then it turned out to be medium then like where was the fun part you yeah. know so and also it adds a lot of pressure if everybody knows that you're writing something like a rock opera then it's a lot of pressure to, yeah. to, to write a rock opera. And it's also it like could incredibly be hubristic to, cr- to claim that as a 25-year-old. Like, yeah, to be like, I'm doing this. Yeah. Hi, I, I, I'm here at the, uh, at the Blue Terrapin, but I'm really working on my opera. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be so lame. Um, the so, one person who you let know outside of the band. <laughs> who did I tell? Tom C. I told Tom C? You told Tom C. because uh, I trusted. You, said, you thanked him afterward. I think Tom C, though, yeah. You could have told Tom C that you had killed someone. And he would yeah, he'd be fine with that. Did um, I tell him that? No, I didn't tell him that. Um, so anyways, Motri Moxie Me was a poem that I had written, and I hated it. And I really thought the names of the characters were great. Okay. And every time I tried to write a story, it I didn't like it. And then I needed, just like with Road Song, sometimes with the Biscuits, when you have fairly, like, unstandard music, like this has four hits by one, two, like where's the beat in this? Could be in a million different places. You really got to get into it a lot. You got to let Aaron sit with organ and then try the JP and like try different keyboard lines. He's got keyboard sounds in there that I don't even know exist. You got to give him a chance to play the song so many times that he gets bored with one line and goes to something else um, and find something really great. And so uh, the lyrics of Mulberry Dream were way, way too obvious for me. So it's mostly the links, the lyrics of Mulberry's Dream. Yeah. But um, I think I changed the... Uh, yeah, I think I just put in some, some like, placeholders, if you will. Like, Rockefeller, the lyrics are placeholders. He never wrote the song because everybody loved the placeholders. This song, nobody liked the placeholders. Well, you only did it once. And the other thing that I guess you did that year, and this is even, this is even before I came on. Like, mm-hmm. I came on that fall. So this is all happening oh. before even me. Um, you did, and this is no tape exists of this, but it, they're on the Biscuits Internet Project. Yeah. It says on May first, you played a song called Leora, and where's that song? I don't know if a tape even exists. If, if it's Fundos, gotta be very men. Fundos or Gop or somebody. Or Wait, Tom where C. was it played? May first, nineteen ninety-eight. Let me see. Oh yeah, I bet you that was the hook of Very Moon without the other parts. It was probably just yeah. It was Leora stands on her head doing two step on her. Head. It was probably that. So that would have been the first 
official time you were singing about these characters. Were you, yes. So, so, but the so, other parts of Very Moon probably weren't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, the song didn't debut until uh, December. I'd like to thank Sin Lawn. S-Y-N-L-A-W-N. It's basically synthetic lawn. It's literal grass, folks. It's AstroTurf. Do you want to have the joy of grass without the pain of watering and maintenance? Well, this is for you. This is the largest manufacturer of synthetic grass in the country. It's made in the United States. It's bio-ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's USDA bio-based certified, and they will install it for you. So do you have a house and there's a bunch of dirt in the backyard? Put some Sinlon down, folks. Sinlon.com slash touchdowns for more information about the Sinlon products. Thank you, Sinlon, for joining the Touchdowns All Day family. You're writing a rock opera at this point, but when did the characters, when did the story come to you? And talk about the wallpaper and, and how that factored in all of this. The wallpaper in Mark's bedroom. Uh, I don't even know. How, did that factor into it? Did Mark's wallpaper not have hot air balloons all over it? Maybe it did, but it didn't. I didn't live in that room, and I didn't. He smoked a lot of pot. I didn't smoke pot that so much. So that had, for some reason, I always was under the impression <laughs> so the story I that I was that told way back then was that the the hot air balloon was inspired by Mark had this. He had the the little boy's bedroom in the house. He did. In the, he upper did have the, Yeah. And and he had the the wallpaper was covered with hot air balloons, and he hated it. Yeah. Why would he eventually like painted over it because he felt like it was cramping his game? Of course. But that. That that somehow how psycho is that? Factored you know I mean? in the inspiration. No, no, not at all. No, okay, Hot then, Air Balloon. The song was written at at, uh, at my pen apartment because I remember writing it there. And the the rock opera was in the song Hot Air Balloon. The the in a hot air balloon. That whole part without all the other stuff, without even the buildings, um, just the actual chords, the song. That was written at the uh, Baltimore Street place in Philly. I was I was at the bottom. Mark lived in the top apartment. I lived in the bottom apartment. And yeah, yeah, that's where I did all that kind of like a CDB was written there. A little bit boop was written there. Like that was where I was at that on that tip. When I wrote the Hot Air Balloon song and I had those lyrics, I was like, oh, that could be a huge deal right there. Just like with Mo Tree Boxing and me, I was looking for these stories to write about. And looking for stuff to write about as a lyricist is like having something to talk about as a lyricist is like the fucking best news of your day. You know what I mean? The worst thing is like having a song. It's great. You would know how you want to sing, but you have no idea what you want to talk about. That's the worst as a lyricist and as a singer and as a songwriter. So suddenly you have nine songs that you can write with characters and storylines. Yeah, that's and- what I thought of at the end of it. If Mark was put in a room with hot air balloons on the wall, which I do actually kind of slightly remember, I guess. Um, it's like blue wallpaper or something. I, I never really thought too much of it, but I didn't hang out with him in his room because they smoked a lot of weed in there and I didn't smoke a lot of pot back then. Um I don't know, man. That would be terrible for him because he was writing his own songs and to have like reminders of my songs <laughs> staring him in the face all day. I would think if I was in his shoes, I would be very annoyed. Maybe that's by that. why he painted the walls. <laughs> yeah, I would have painted fucking the fucking bar, walls. Yeah, I mean, considering what happened yeah. right after he painted the walls. <laughs> um, so, so was you talked about last time about hot air balloon? How the the verse structure was sort of like your Bob Dylan, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Totally. D- a simple, a simple twist of fate. Was that the first, so was that the kind of thing that gave birth to the entire 
concept, just the of the, the rock opera, for or, sure, or the world. The rock opera, the song was. I was writing. I listened to Simple Twist of Fate I, at least sixty thousand times. Who has I dissected it? I figured out how he wrote it, and then I made my own versions of it. So my, the rhyme scheme of Hot Air Balloon is not the same rhyme scheme as Simple Twist of Fate. The concept is there where you are rhyming middle of the line and stuff like that in a very structured way, you know? Um, but the, so like the interesting thing about Simple Twist of Fate is it is the same rhyme scheme throughout the entire song. Every yeah. single line is in this structure and that in itself is kind of a challenge from a songwriting point of view. So Hot Air Balloon, same way, same way. So I just kind of took that idea, but I had, it has its own rhyme scheme. Um, and then I was kind of ended up like rhyming the E's and the A's and the O's and the balloons. And then that was the part that I liked. And then I was like, thought about it and I was like, okay, it worked on every level. It was what my heart wanted to talk about, what my head wanted to think about. Uh, it worked because it, it boiled down to an acoustic guitar really well, but you could think of it in this massive scale. And then when you start thinking about it in this massive scale, you start thinking about like, what what's going you know if somebody's in a hot air balloon flying around like what are they looking at who's down there what's the big deal and then that was why where i was like holy shit like i have lyrics for days now yeah you know for me it was just like i think i wrote frog legs in the same room so it's like jackpot i got one ironically probably written the same exact week as as the uh, hot air balloon song. It could be a part of the greater hot air balloon universe. I mean, probably. It was the same exact week. It was the same time. Like, I think Jackpot I Got One is I have lyrics for days now. And then you start getting... Oh, oh you, were, you start that was you free. singing the... Okay, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I Frog you Legs is hot air Coronado balloon. Coronado having the jackpot. No, the no. Idea, or Frog Legs is me saying, I don't... I, don't I, I have a whole rock opera to write about now. Amazing. And then when you get into that level of euphoria... You get free songs like Frog Legs. Yes. It just, you're not the, thinking about what to write about anymore. You're just writing. The tap is on. Yeah, tap is on. The muse is flowing through you. And that's what Frog Legs is. Okay. I can picture myself in the same shitty room with the mattress on the floor. <laughs> Fucking Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I had a piano in that apartment, which was weird. I okay. bought a piano. And so that why, that's why that apartment was so great. Is In the next room, there was a piano and nobody ever complained about me playing it. Even late at night, nobody ever complained. So were you composing it all on the piano, or was it always on the Yeah, guitar? a lot of stuff. So Mulberry's Dream was written in that apartment. It was written on piano. Um, just the lick, uh, not the rest of the song. C2B was there, but C2B was on guitar. Uh, I was playing a lot of Beethoven on piano, like uh, arpeggiated music going on. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a lot of like weird or Beethoven-y chords in that hot air balloon stuff. Like all that A to the C sharp minor stuff. That's Moonlight Sonata in reverse. You know, it's it is kind of, I think. Yeah. Reverse Moonlight Sonata. So I, you know, I'm like taking these ideas from these other people and trying to do my thing with them. And you know? you're, you're starting at the end of the story. You start with what, yeah. it, what essentially becomes the the culmination of the entire narrative arc. Yeah. Where do you go back from there? Do you go back to the beginning? Do you start, is it a linear process? Because, you know, you, 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 you definitely debut the songs out of order. No one really had any idea. There wasn't enough of a clear narrative through line in the way that you were releasing them. And we, we weren't mm -hmm. necessarily picking up the names or the, you know, uh, 
the themes, we had no idea. We just thought you were writing a bunch of discontinuous, self-contained songs. But what was your mm -hmm. workflow like at that point? Well, I used to sit in my apartment and write music all day, and I had no friends and no money. So that was my workflow. Um, that's the ideal workflow if you're writing music. Yeah. No friends, no money. Shitty apartment. It's perfect for writing music. This is nothing better. Um, and a piano in the next And room. a piano in your... Yeah, that, that nobody complains about you hammering on. You know? Even if you're, like, just hanging out, drinking red wine by yourself or magnums, and you're just fucking hammering on a piano all night. If nobody complains... You have a chance. I had a shitty apartment in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and I was like, this is going to be great. All they did was complain to me. I would get notes, and then I would think about my impending negotiation with my neighbors. Yeah. And that you can't, you have to move out of that apartment. Yeah. I fled that apartment, you know? Eulogy written on piano in the next house. Uh, Voices Insane was written at Andy Gay Deal. Uh, in Michigan? Uh, his or? Michigan house that we stayed at a couple days. Uh, I don't remember where I was living at that time. But, like, yeah, they all came together. Like, I would, I, I didn't, I don't remember when I skeletoned the thing and started slotting things into position. I'll give you some dates. Fiddler, August 28th, Wetlands debut. Overture at the Crowbar the next month on September 9th. Right. Mul proper Mulberries at the 8 by 10 October 16th. Five days later, Voices debuts in Ithaca. Uh, here's an interesting one. On uh, November 14th, you're at like a Carnegie Mellon frat party. You play Bazaar. And at the end of Bazaar, of course, is. Right. That was on the original version. Huh. Weird. And when was that? November 14th, 1998. Okay, so this is what happened there. Um, that part is the music that gets played when you fall into the water and you're underwater. Yeah. That part makes a lot of sense. In bizarre escape when you because you, know. he jumps off the cliff and lands in the water yeah and then that's the water music then you sit down and you write your claude debussy tribute piece and you say it sucks that the best water other song and then you spend a bunch of hours arguing with yourself from 2 a.m to 8 a.m is there a way to change bizarre, even though bizarre is perfect, is there a way to? And then you just come to the conclusion: I'm going to use the same lick in yeah. both spots. The timeline of the the rock opera very nonlinear. You start, yeah. Well, the everything overture. Tarantino was putting out was very nonlinear. Okay, so is that an influence on you at the time, where you're going back and forth? And yeah, I mean, we were watching. We watched Pulp, Pulp Fiction, Fiction like a thousand yeah. times at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, there was definitely, if you're going to write something, you got to move the timeline a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think that after Westworld this past year, and la the first, second season, third season of Westworld, where they took timeline jumping to, like, as far as anybody would ever want to take it, 
Maybe no one's going to timeline again for like 20 more years after that. Everything's so going to be enough. very boring and linear. Yeah. yeah, but like, hey, Tarantino will come out with a new movie and he'll use it artistically again. So when I was doing a little timeline jumping, you know, in Hot Air Balloon, I just wanted to do it nice like he would do it. I didn't want to do it as like a gimmick. So I did a little bit of it. You know what I mean? So by this point, you've got at least two parts of Waves. You've got the mm-hmm. the very beginning and you've got you know, the two thirds point to the end. You've got the road song part and then you've got the WC part, for the, mm-hmm. the the descending, yes. the falling off the cliff after after the chase. Um, let me go to Magner now. Magner talked a lot about the structure of the song and he'll set us up into talking about the jam and listening to some jams because right, this has been a lot of me talking and not a lot of, of, of Biscuits music. So here's Magner uh, talking about the structure of the composition. So Above the Waves has three sections as a song, right? There's the beginning section, which kind of sounds like you're going in and out of the waves. Um, you know, right? So you have that and kind of sounds like you're bobbing up and down and the waves are taking you up and down. This isn't like the playful, you're at the beach on a sunny day. This is you're, you're in the middle of the ocean and the waves are kind of undulating and you're, you're, you're gasping for breath each time. And musically, that's what's being represented. Then you kind of crest the wave for a second, you know, and you, you, you're, 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 you're getting there. Right. Then comes the lead. Right. And then the jam. And the jam is what's super interesting to me because it, it has a very, powerful chord progression that the biscuits have used frequently in our career and that's the one to um classical music refers to this the neapolitan six it's it's the flat six uh so in the case of above the ways it's f sharp to d um we have another jam like that in in ladies goes e to c same type of thing and i i think it's one of the most powerful two chord progression in music um and there's a lot of different ways that you could then cite from one six and to get back to the one a couple different chord changes that you can do along the way which we've explored in lots of the above the waves jams and ladies jams over the years um but that's what kind of makes it like really dark and driving and powerful um you know and of course the the tempo of above the waves dark powerful right then you get into the into what was affectionately once upon a time known as road song right where everything kind of like settles for a second um and and the waves have have subsided a little bit and there's promise at the end of the story so so talk to me maybe play for me what is he talking about with that Neapolitan chord progression that you hear in Waves as well as in Ladies. That's what he's talking about. So, so, so Waves, right? So, Above the Waves was a bass line that I used to sing before even maybe the band existed. I used to sing this boo 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 do 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 boo do 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 boo do 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 boo 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 do 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 boom 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 boom. I used to sing that for no reason all the time, 
I, I used to live like it was back when I was like an engineering student. Like I remember where I lived. I used to live in the place across the street from the engineering building. I used to live there and then go engineer and come back. I used to, that was my life for a year to baseline in that building all the time. All, I, don't, I just picture where I was. And I, I was having no success taking baselines that I wrote and giving them to the band and getting good results. I just wasn't either writing good bass lines or, or probably not writing good bass lines, but I wasn't able to get the, 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 like take endo for instance, like, like I love that bass line, but it just doesn't, it's not a bass line. You know what I mean? That's what Mark would say. It's, he's like, it's cool groove. That's not the bass line. The baseline is I'll play you the baseline. That's what yeah. he would say, right? And so, I mean, I, I don't play a lot of bass, but I hear a lot of bass in my head. But the bass that I hear in my head at the time when this song came around was I was learning that the bass that I heard in my head was actually a guitar because I moved the baseline to guitar. No for no. That was the baseline. It was, it was, it was a. Uh, I was on this guitar. Really? Yeah. Um, that was the line. I used to play it and be like, this is so sick. And, and then everybody would like, be like, ah, fuck that. <laughs> but up here, do, 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 where the bass can be a bass line, it was really, really powerful. So that was the moment where I was like, okay, like, you got to move some shit around. There's countless stories of like the old classical guys doing that. So I was like, okay, this is me doing it. This is my version of it. And, um, and it fucking worked great. The, the Neapolitan, uh, what does Magner call it? The... I mean, it would be and this, actually. what is it in... It's, it's, it's Classic Biscuits because it's 1-4, and Classic Biscuits is 1-4. But the one four is not the, off the root. The one four is in the middle of the chord progression because you play F sharp to D to G. So the D to the G is your one four back to the D back to the F sharp. Okay. So I don't know where that chord progression is used. Honestly, I didn't even think about the chord progression. I'm thinking these notes is this is these are the notes of the bass line. When I started playing it up high, I was like, oh, this is great. Like. How do I get, um, I mean, Aaron definitely wrote the chords for this song, which is probably why, or for this section of the song. So it's probably why he has like such a connection to the chords, whereas I don't, you know okay. what I mean? I just hear like, that sounds right. That doesn't sound right. You know, that's where I'm at with this part of the song. So yeah, it's that one six thing, you know, sometimes if you get to, so people disagree with me on this and that's fine. Um, because it is two different ways to skin a cat. But like, I'm a very mathematical person. Mm -hmm. And if I start thinking about what the notes are, then the song becomes a Sudoku puzzle to me. And if I don't know what notes I'm singing and no idea, like, um, and there's so many places in our music where I don't even know what I'm playing, really. Um, and I never really, it's like, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like there's something 
really powerful about just making the music because that's the way the music sounds and not thinking about it on any kind of analytical level. And there's something to be said for like truly understanding the analytics of the song and then breaking it down and being able to then manipulate it from there. So it's tough because I find for me personally, like a song like Above the Waves was kind of a compositional moment where I was moving a, a bass line to something really high and really strong and powerful. And the idea of thinking about which chord goes here, which chord goes there, I, I think I kind of can rely on Aaron to handle that a lot of the time. I mean, even the new songs like Anthem, I basically played the melody over and over and over again right here. And just Aaron was picking different chords. And I was like, that's great. That's not great. Not once did I ask him, what was that chord? I kind of can figure it out if I want to like sit there and try and put my very terrible, perfect pitch hat on. I could be like, oh, that's a D, blah, blah, you know, but I try and stay away from that. And just like, do I like that chord? Do I not like that chord? And then like you try and track the combination of the chords to a point where like you feel like it's interesting enough to be unique and yet at the same time it's like you're not going too far into just like a one six two five or something so like a song like anthem i learned we went over and over the chord progression and there's a couple different options uh free but slinky there's two different options and those i don't even know what those chords were when when we picked them you know it was just like okay that one sounds great and then, um, and then I went back and looked at the chords of, of Anthem and I was like, oh, this is pretty normal stuff. Like if I had thought these were what the chords were, I would have been unimpressed with how normal it is. And I would have wanted to do more with it. You know, yeah. I would have wanted a funny chord in there or something. So like to avoid funny chords, you know, don't think too much about them, but you need somebody like Aaron in the band to do that. So that process of you bringing it to Aaron, and then Aaron kind of working yeah. with you through that, is that in a full group setting typically, or do you go Sometimes. first to Aaron and then to the rest of the band? Or what's, when you have that skeleton or that outline, how does it then make its way through that progression? It depends. Um, if if Mark and, and Alan are in the band or Mark and Sammy are there, it was the same either way. Um, there is an issue of what's the groove. You know, and so something like Anthem, I, the groove is like so, there's so many options for that groove, ironically. You know, it's fast, it's high powered, it's high energetic, but you could do so many things there that to have Aaron just play piano and I play the melody and then let's just pick the chords and pick the chords. It's simpler, it's easier to do, and I feel like you're gonna get better results. If you have everybody there at the same time, the, 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 the battle for like, it's easier to to get to to sit around and try and figure out what the groove is when everybody has kind of responsibility there than it is to figure out the chords a lot of the time. Yeah, you know, because only Aaron really has to like the 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 chords are less. I mean, not everybody's got to play them, but it's just it's just a little bit harder to play bass and drums when you don't know what the groove is. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? You can play keyboards if you don't know what the chords are. You just play some cool lick and, you know, hammer something weird. You could do stuff. Yeah. But if you don't know what the groove is and you got to play drums and bass, you're like, well, I, don't, I don't even know how to get started.
Mask, come here, Nikki. Mask, come here, Nikki.